Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And we're broadcasting live from the studios of Bellevue College TV studio. And it's KBCS, our local affiliate here in Seattle that is sponsoring us. And we're so pleased to be here and complete with our own peanut gallery. On the line with us is Julio Rivera. He is the editorial director of Reactionary Times. He's a columnist for Newsmax, the American Thinker, and Town Hall. ReactionaryTimes.com is the website. And if you would like to tweet him, and people often do after our conversations, his Twitter handle is Oh, yeah, it's Julio, O-H-Y-E-A-H-I-T-S-J-U-L-I-O. Julio, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I hope, my friend, you are well. The issue I wanted to discuss with you is I'm on, as you know, Donald Trump's email lists and and the White House email list and all this other stuff. And one of the messages that I've been getting periodically, it seems to happen about once a week, there'll be some rant about how, you know, Bernie Sanders and the Democrats want to give free health care that you're paying for to those illegal immigrants who are sneaking into the country. And, you know, I have an argument for why actually we should do that. But I'm curious your thoughts on this. Well, I mean, Tom, to me, it's just basic economic issue. I mean, we have a finite system, uh, a certain number of, of fixed taxpayers 
I think that when you allow for something like that and you make it be known to the rest of the world that we're going to go ahead and grant, you know, Medicare for all for undocumented citizens, you're just going to open the floodgates to people coming to this country from all over the world trying to seek that free health care. And, and who's really going to pay for it? I mean, I was looking at numbers in, in 2015, the total federal budget was 3.6, I'm sorry, $4.2 trillion, $4.2 trillion. We collected in total, you know, the total amount of taxes that we, uh, federal taxes that we collected was $3.6 trillion. So we ran a deficit of uh, $600 billion. I mean, can you imagine the kind of deficits that we're going to run if we're going to go ahead and pretty much make it be known to the rest of the world that anyone who just happens to cross into our borders will be entitled to, you know, really very, very expensive, you know, the, the Medicare for all, uh, you know, healthcare is very expensive in this country. And, you know, people coming in from different countries that haven't had the same level of healthcare up to the point where they enter, they haven't had the vaccinations, they may be carrying diseases. There was a big problem in the Minneapolis area when they accepted a whole bunch of Somali refugees back a few years ago, where I, I think it was something somewhere around 85 percent of them were carrying this parasite that was very expensive to clear out of their body. And these are people who up to that point hadn't paid a penny into the system. And, and over 90 percent of those people also wound up getting on welfare and food stamp programs. So, I mean, we listen, we're very generous. We're the country that probably leads the world. I think uh, I, I know for a fact, sorry, we lead the world in total legal immigration. I think we're doing enough. I mean, I don't think that that's something that we really need to grant people. But I would love to hear your argument as to why? Sure. My argument as to why is I was in Australia and I got sick. I got Giardia, which is a, a parasite, actually. It's a, it, it infects water supplies. It's just the most god-awful food poisoning that you can imagine. And they treated me for free. The, the total bill was 25 bucks, and that was for the medication that killed the parasite, which I got down at the pharmacy down the street. But seeing the doctor cost me absolutely nothing. And the reason why is because Australia doesn't want sick people walking around inside Australia. I mean, you know, if you're sitting in a Chipotle or in a, a McDonald's or, you know, whatever, you're sitting in a restaurant in Brooklyn, and the person next to you, is, you know, has tuberculosis or has coronavirus, God forbid, and they are highly contagious, but they can't seek medical care because they're not here legally. How do you think that's a good thing? Every other country in the world, I got sick in Germany once. I ended up in the hospital. I thought I wasn't sick. I thought I was having a heart attack. Cost me absolutely nothing. And that was for CAT scans and everything. I mean, it was just a major workup. And my daughter got sick in England once. It was an ear infection. It wasn't something that's highly contagious. But again, the doctor came to the house. Actually, he made a house call and gave her the antibiotic to knock it out. And there was no charge at all, because again, none of these countries want there to be sick people in their countries. It's a public health issue, Julio. Well, I mean, I understand what, when, what you're trying to say, but I think it, it, the bigger issue is the fact that, you know, we're not securing our borders and, you know, we can potentially have people walk into this country that may be carrying these diseases and they may spread them. And, you know, God forbid we have an outbreak like they're having right now in China where, you know, you've got thousands of people sick with this coronavirus, which they probably developed in a laboratory. Who knows? But I don't want to speculate on that. That's not the conversation that we're having. Um, you know, Thank ultimately, you. I think that the cost, like, you know, you're talking about the cost in those other countries. It's a lot cheaper. You know, ever since, you know, the, 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 the further 
you know, left attempted to try this uh, government health care system, you know, with Obamacare. It seems that the cost of health care has only gone up in America, you know, with the mandatory minimums, the so-called essential benefits and everything like that. It wound up costing people more in this country, which, you know, that's actually kind of the opposite of what we want to create. Like right now, you're broadcasting from a university full of young people. Who are the people that really got um, hurt the worst in, in this government health care system that uh, Barack Obama tried to uh, uh, institute? It was really young people, because young people no longer could just get catastrophic coverage for less than $100 a month. I had friends that were, you know, about in their mid-20s paying 400 to $500 a month for, you know, coverages, you know, under the, uh, the the essential benefits that they would never use. I mean, I had a friend, he was a male, 25 years old. Why is he paying for mammograms and pap smears and gender reassignment surgery that he's never going to have and paying $500 a month? You know, it's not really fair to young people, um, the, the, pad, the previous system we had. I just read a report claiming somehow that Medicare for all would somehow save America money. It was a, a study, I don't know if you saw this, it was conducted by Yale University, uh, the University of Maryland, and I believe another school. Did you see that, Tom? Yeah, I did. And there's, there was another one that was published earlier this week in The mm-hmm. Lancet, the British medical journal that is considered the gold standard for the world. And they did a year-long examination of Medicare for All in the United States, and they concluded that not only would it save us about a trillion dollars a year, um, but it also would save 68,000 American lives every single year. Now, and, they say, but uh, where have we heard this before, Tom? I mean, think the about reason, it. Didn't they the say reason, the same thing about Obamacare? Didn't they say that a family of four would save, you know, uh, um, uh, what was it, like thirty? According to Harvard University, Obamacare dollars a year more. Obamacare, according to Harvard University, Obamacare save is saving right now on the order of twenty to twenty-five thousand lives a year because of Medicaid expansion, and Medicaid is, you know, the government, a single-payer health care system. You know, I'm with you, Julio. I'm not a big fan of Obamacare's, um, you know, subsidies to the for-profit insurance companies. I, I don't like the for-profit insurance companies. I don't think that they should exist. But the reason why your 25-year-old should be paying into the system exactly the same as somebody who's 60 years old is the same reason that your 25-year-old should be paying into Social Security, just, just like a 60-year-old, because we're all in this together. And if we're not all in this together, if we don't all chip in throughout the process, then the system falls apart, and then okay. we don't have a social safety net, and we don't have, you know, not, we don't have anything to catch us when we fall, if we get sick, or if there's an epidemic uh, yeah, okay. of coronavirus, God forbid. We have that, Tom, but uh, to a certain extent already, because, you know, different individual states have the way that they go ahead and administrate the, the Medicaid system. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to drive down costs, you've got to provide more choices to people. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the essential benefits make it a lot more expensive for younger people where they could, per, you know, potentially purchase the services that they really need, you know, a la carte, so to speak, and, and get back to where it used to be. I mean, when I was young, I only paid about $100 a month for, for um catastrophic insurance and i was covered just fine you know and, and I, young people unfortunately <laughs> no longer have that option yeah you're yeah, yeah, a lot younger than me julia when i was young back in the seven, 60s and 70s i was paid 35 dollars a month for comprehensive blue cross blue shield that covered everything but any I'm but sure they were required were, by huh? law to be a nonprofit. julio rivera julio thanks so much for dropping this by is the tom Anytime. hartman program julio's website is reactionarytimes.com and you can tweet him at oh yeah it's julio We'll be back.
Well, here's a pretty amazing story. Julian Assange is wanted in America right now uh, to face 18 charges, including conspiring to commit computer intrusion and basically treason. I don't know if that's the, one of the explicit ones, but there's this whole collection over his publication of U.S. cables back a, a decade ago. He's literally facing 175 years in jail if uh, he's extradited from the United Kingdom to the United States. And now his lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, and his barrister, so apparently he's got a British lawyer, that would be Edward Fitzgerald QC, and his uh, U.S. lawyer, Jennifer Robinson. Uh, this from the, I'll, I'll just read this straight. This is from The Guardian. It's the top story right now at theguardian.com. Donald Trump offered Julian Assange a pardon if he would say Russia was not involved in leaking Democratic Party emails. And this was introduced in court in London yesterday. Uh, Assange's barrister, Edward Fitzgerald QC, referred to evidence alleging that the former U.S. Republican Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, who has a long history of having a very good relationship with Russia, which you could argue is a good thing, uh, but maybe not, you know, depending on how he uses it. Uh, Dana Rohrabacher had been to see Assange while he was still in the Equatorian Embassy in August of 2017. A statement from Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, says, quote, Mr. Rohrabacher going to see Mr. Assange and saying, on instructions from the president, he was offering a pardon or some other way out if Mr. Assange said Russia had nothing to do with the DNC leaks. That's a quote from a lawyer testifying under oath in British court today. Wow. So Donald Trump is, uh, is really up to no good. I'm going to invite a member of our studio audience here to ask a question. Mm. You are. Hi, Tom, and thank you very much. Uh, my name is Chris, and I am from Sammamish, Great. and we support uh, KBCS. My question is, in all this turmoil, how do you stay positive? I remind myself that America has been through far worse, that America was the first country I suppose you could argue that, you know, Greece and, and Rome were, or at least the early Greek and Roman uh, republics were founded on, the, on an idea, but America was the first country in the modern era that was really founded on the idea of personal liberty. Now, it was obviously very badly acted out, you know, with slavery and the fact that women didn't even get the vote until 1920 and all the, uh, these other things. But that idea of the Enlightenment was there. And it took hold, and it took hold deeply. And I think the reason why it resonates so deeply in all of us humans is because it is our real nature. It's our true nature to take, you know, to care for each other, to be part of a community. This is why the human race is still around after 300,000 years or longer, is because we do care for each other. When you look at tribal societies, they tend to function democratically, small d democratically. When you look at aboriginal, indigenous societies all over the world, they tend to function democratically. There's a chapter in my book, What Would Jefferson Do?, about how animals uh, function democratically. You know, I, I've told the story of the red deer for years and years, that when you've got a herd of, this is a study that was done at East Anglia University in the United Kingdom, where they have, outside the university, they have this herd of deer, that, and they've got all these cameras in the trees and stuff, and they're studying behavior of, of these deer. And what they found, you know, it's a really tough decision when the deer are grazing and, you know, they're walking around eating leaves and stuff like that. 
they have to figure out when's the time for everybody to go to the watering hole. And because you know, they all have to go together to protect themselves from predators. And if they go too early, then some people don't get enough, or some deer don't get enough food. If they go too late, then some might get dehydrated. I mean, there's actually a, there's a, it's actually a fairly sophisticated decision that has to be made. And the way that they do this is around the time that typically that they go to the watering hole, what you'll see is that deer will start orienting their bodies. And, and there were multiple watering holes. There were two or three of them. And they will start angling their bodies toward a particular watering hole. And when they hit 50% of the deer pointing at the watering hole, suddenly the entire herd just goes there and drinks and gets their water. We see this, you see this with a flock of birds. Birds, when they're flying, they're voting literally with every wing beat. And they, they might be voting to move a little to the left. And the whole flock eventually, you know, when 51% of the birds are moving a little to the left, the whole, it just spreads through them because it's democracy. You see this with schools of fish. They've done this slow motion photography now and we discover that, that all of these animals are functioning small d democratically. And that's why, if you look at, at, at tribal people, if you read uh, Peter Farb's book, uh, Man's Rise to Civilization and the Native Americans, he went back and looked at first contact reports from the 1600s, the very first contacts between Europeans and Native American people, and chronicles, I think, 28 different tribes in that book. It's a, it's a masterpiece, that book. And I'm not sure if it's still in print, but you can, you can get used copies. I have several of them. And I quoted extensively in Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And he talks about how basically every tribe in America was a functioning democracy and more functional as a democracy in many ways than what we have right now. And, you know, these tribes, they were called um, uh, hospitality societies, potlatch societies, where the way you gain status is not by having stuff, but by giving stuff away. This is humanity. I mean, this is in our DNA as mammals. It's in our history for hundreds of thousands of years. It spans across all of the hominids. Obviously, they just found a, a, a Neanderthal burial place in Iraq last week. It's a big story in the, in the news. And it was this elaborate burial ritual that the whole, obviously the whole community had participated in. And these are people who aren't even homo sapiens, you know. But look at, you know, elephants mourn their dead. And so democracy is our default mode. And when we try and move away from it, you know, when Japan moved away from it and started a war, when Germany moved away from it and started a war, it was horrible and bloody, but we ultimately rebalanced ourselves. And so my scientific understandings and my historical understandings, and in the context of history, looking at the history of the United States, looking at the hell we've been through. We've been through two world wars. We've been through a civil war. We've been through a revolutionary war. We went through the failure of reconstruction. We went through, we've been through so many different changes. We continually, but through that entire arc, that entire 240 years of history, if you look at it decade by decade by decade, yeah, sometimes we backslide, but broadly speaking, we're constantly moving forward. And even this backsliding that has happened since the Reagan revolution, when, when they kicked out Keynesian economics, now we're seeing Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren coming back and saying, no, let's return to Keynesian economics. Let's reject Reaganism and return. And we may not make it this time. I mean, we might get a, a, you know, a Democratic nominee who is just fine with continuing another four years of the Reagan revolution. I think that will be unfortunate. 
but I don't think it'll be a disaster. I think the disaster would be electing Donald Trump. But even if Donald Trump gets reelected and says, okay, screw the American experiment, and I'm going to start taking the so-called FEMA camps that Obama was going to put all their conservatives in, you know, there's no such thing, of course. But there are these there are these private prisons that are being built for the refugees who are trying to come to this country, and they're also uh, building quarantine centers right now for tens of thousands of people around some of the big military bases. Even if Donald Trump was to start putting people like me in jail, which is typically the first thing that somebody like that would do. This is what Orban did in Hungary. It's what Duda is doing right now in Poland. It's what Duterte is doing right now in the Philippines. It's what Bolsonaro is doing in Brazil. Even if that happens, I have absolute faith that within a decade, at the most a generation, America will bounce back. Because that, those founding ideas of the Enlightenment, and they weren't even the, the, the founders and framers of America. These were the, you know, the, the, the philosophers of Europe, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and John Locke, and, and uh, all the way back to Thomas Hobbes. I mean, he was the first person to say, people can rule themselves. You know, we don't need kings. A radical idea, that was 1634 and it led straight to 1776. So I see this as, as a time of crisis and challenge. But that should activate us and energize us rather than frighten us and depress us and demoralize us. Yes, we've got major forces against us. Yes, the Supreme Court has rigged the game in favor of the rich. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a disaster. I think we can come through this. And even with Bloomberg, I mean, you know, he's talking like a progressive now. I believe in redemption. I believe that people can change. If it turns out that this is just a, you know, kind of a shuck and jive that he's just saying to try to get elected and then he becomes president and tries to turn himself into Richard Nixon, there'll be a hellacious response from the, from the nation. And, and let's keep in mind, you know, one of the richest people who was ever elected president of the United States, well, the two richest guys ever elected president of the United States in, in the 20th century were Franklin Roosevelt and Jack Kennedy. And they both had, you know, almost Michael Bloomberg kind of money. So I'm just not freaked out. I'm hopeful I am, and I'm going to work as hard as I can, as long as I can to make things work. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back. KBCS is hosting us here in Seattle. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. 
There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, 
But logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, uh, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for The Hidden History of Voting. This book is the third in the series after The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment and The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. So the book tour rolls on Sunday of, you know, this coming weekend, the 23rd, February 23rd, I'll be in Minneapolis for the Blue State Ball. Information there, ktnf.com, or there's a link to it again on my website at tomharbin.com. Friday the 28th, the week from Friday, I'll be at Powell's in Portland, the flagship location on Burnside. That's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be at 7.30 p.m. And Sunday, March 1st, we're two weeks down the road here, I believe, I'll be in Chicago at Frugal Muse Books out in Darien. I've been there many times, and Paul, the guy who runs the, the bookstore, is a great guy, and we're going to have a lot of fun. I was on Crystal Ball's show you know, on Hill TV. The message that I'm trying to share, I've told you a few times, is this essential message that the only way Republicans have gotten the White House in 2016 with George W. Bush and Donald Trump, and the only way probably a half a dozen members of Republican members of the Senate and probably 30 or 40 members, Republican members of the House of Representatives, the only way that they're there is because of voter suppression. This massive voter suppression campaign, George Bush and Jeb Bush kicked this thing off in 2000 in Florida by using the Texas felon list to push 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in Florida. That created a huge uproar. So in 2002, they passed a law, the Help America Vote Act, that created this thing called provisional ballots, where when people are pushed off the voting rolls, they still show up, they're given a ballot, they think they voted. That's why they walk out and tell the exit pollster, yeah, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And that's why almost, according to the, uh, the exit polls, Hillary Clinton won Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin. And two of those states she won by about 6%, according to the exit polls. But the official count, after all these people were purged and after all these provisional ballots that were not even opened, much less counted, were just stuck in a box someplace, yeah, magically Donald Trump wins, and Rick Scott goes to the Senate, and uh, Andrew Gillum loses, and Stacey Abrams loses, and all of those losses, all those Democratic losses in 2016 and 2018 were entirely caused by voter suppression. And as you and I are speaking right now in red states all across the country, this is not happening in states with Democratic secretaries of state. This is a totally partisan thing. 
But right now, as you and I are speaking in red states across the country, secretaries of state are, are purging people from the vote, particularly in large cities, particularly in cities with large black populations. Even in Georgia, for example, even in rural areas that have large black populations, purging the vote like crazy, reducing the number of voting stations. Brian Kemp closed more than 200 voting stations just in time for his election against uh, Stacey Abrams in 2018. These people are illegitimate. This is, in my opinion, criminal. If it's not criminal by law, and I believe it is, frankly, it's also criminal by, by morality. The 14th Amendment, Article 2 of the 14th Amendment, explicitly says that if a state suppresses a legitimate vote, if a state prevents people from voting who have a right to vote, the state starts losing members of the House of Representatives. Now, I just learned this a couple days ago. It should be in my book, right? It should be a whole chapter, but I didn't know it at the time. You know, I've read the 14th Amendment. I wrote a whole damn book about the 14th Amendment called Unequal Protection. And somehow I missed that. When you read the language of Article 2 of the 14th Amendment, it gets kind of obscure. But there it is. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that Georgia should lose one of their members of the House. And some of these other uh, right-wing red states, too. Ohio, you know, they, you know, you guys don't... I mean, you know, if, if you suppress 580,000 votes in Georgia, that's at least one and maybe two congressional districts. And therefore, they should have two fewer members of Congress, in my opinion. Anyhow, but I also wanted to talk about accountability. There's hot stuff going on right now. The Federal Judges Association, this is a nonprofit organization you know, with the board of directors and membership, and pretty much all the federal judges are members. It's not a partisan organization. It's not like the Federalist Society that's nothing but right-wingers. And it's not like uh, the Trial Lawyers Association that's pretty much mostly left-wingers. This is the Federal Judges Association, the FJA, and they have an annual meeting where they just get together and they have educational seminars and workshops. And you've seen these things in hotels, you know, where they, they have the conference and, and they have breakout sessions and panels. And, you know, what's the state of the art here? And what's the latest on how, how effective DNA testing is? Or what is the evidence for eyewitnesses? You know, that kind of stuff. The stuff that judges subtleties of the law and what the Supreme Court just did and bringing people up to speed and how things have changed as a result of legislation and Supreme Court decisions. Of, uh, you know, for you and me, a very boring organization. <laughs> you know? And they've been around for years and years and years. And uh, their annual meeting is slated for April, April 18 and 19. But they are having an emergency meeting as we speak not the entire association, just the board of directors, but, you know, they are freaked out. In fact, that might even be putting it mildly. And they are freaked out by cover-up General Bill Barr. I love using, uh, you know, William Sapphire back in 1991 and 1992 called him cover-up General Barr because he covered up the Iraq WMD scandal, it was called then. It was called Iraqgate, where the Reagan administration illegally sold poison gas to Saddam Hussein that he then used against the Iranians in that war. And Bill Barr covered that up. He shut down the investigation as attorney general. Oh, we're not going to investigate that. Well, yeah, it's a crime. It's a crime in the United States. It's a crime internationally. But we're not going to investigate it. Just like he shut down six separate investigations of Donald Trump when he became attorney general, there's six ongoing investigations, he shut them down. He's shutting down investigations left and right. 
you know, and of course the Roger Stone stuff is at the top of everybody's mind, and, and now he's meddling in the Mike Flynn case, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. It looks like Deutsche Bank was on the verge of being prosecuted by the Obama administration for money, money laundering Russian money that ended up in the pockets of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump comes into office. Bill Barr came a little later. Donald Trump comes into office and suddenly the Justice Department isn't doing the investigation anymore. And Deutsche Bank is just going, oh, hey, this is kind of cool. You know, a whole, a whole year goes by. And the guy who was at the top of that pyramid, by the way, was Justin Kennedy, who was the son of Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court Justice. And then Trump makes this crack to Anthony Kennedy about, say hi to your boy for me. And Anthony Kennedy says, well, I guess I'll resign from the Supreme Court and make way for Brett Kavanaugh. And of course, Anthony Kennedy was the guy who was in favor of gay marriage, and he was the guy who was in favor of abortion rights for women, even though he was a Republican and a right-wing voter on you know, things like trashing unions and reducing regulation you know, for pollution and letting corporations put more poison in the air and more pesticides and all this kind of stuff. I mean, Anthony Kennedy, was, he was an old-fashioned Republican, right? He was a George Herbert Walker Bush Republican. Um, who was kind of liberal on a few social issues like women and gays and on everything else was, you know, right. Well, he's been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, who's a fundamentalist Catholic. We now have, what, six Catholics on the court, I think, and five of them are like Opus Dei Catholics. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor is not. Um, this is mind-boggling. How do we hold these guys to account? And do you think Barr will ever be held to account? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And just to put a period on that, 2,000 former federal prosecutors have come out and said, Barr needs to be impeached or resign. Is the bane of your life wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags? Well, there's something you can do about it. And I'm not talking about risky, expensive surgery. Just Imagine that they're gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's literally the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Uh, try it out. You'll be absolutely astonished. It'll, it'll take 10 years off your appearance. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This, also, this offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. Whew, what a day, huh? I mean, what an extraordinary day week, year, lifetime. I don't know where to begin. It's just, it's just, you know, going on and on and on. And let's see who's here. Uh, Amy in Kokomo, Indiana. Hey, Amy, what's on your mind today? Hello. I was watching David Pacman and he was talking about that the Republicans are sending out fake censuses and the clear yes, was like they're asking if you just get their support for Trump and stuff. I just want everyone to know about this and stuff. So they make sure that, that this is out there. 
Yes. Well, good on you, Amy. And it's true. The GOP or one of the groups affiliated with them, I I haven't had one in my hand, so I can't tell you that, but I have seen images on them on the internet on multiple places. It's uh, People have tweeted it to me. It's Somebody posted one on our Facebook page. And, and of course, I've seen them on news sites. I think there might be two things going on here. If they're selectively sending them to swing voters and Democrats rather than Republicans, many people might fill them out, send them in and think, okay, I've taken the census. And then when the census taker comes around, they'll just say, oh, you know, I'm good. I've already taken it. And so they don't get counted. Yeah. Or secondly, people will fill it out, send it back in, and now the Republican Party has their address and mailing address and their personal information and all kinds of stuff to build into their database to go after them, whether they're going after them on Facebook or whether, you know, whatever it may be. And, yeah, and third, I, they're just they're just adding general confusion to the thing because they want to, this census is really important. It's going to determine federal aid to local communities and to states, the amount of federal aid that they get. So if they can get an undercount in communities of color, Hispanics and African Americans, but particularly they're particularly targeting Hispanic communities now, because that's yeah. that's the fastest growing demographic in the United States right now, and it is heavily Democratic. And if they can target the Hispanic vote and basically knock it out, then or the Hispanic, uh, you know, citizens and voters and knock them out of the census, then there will be fewer resources for them. And there may even be less representation. We may see a reduction in the number of members of the House of Representatives from states that have heavy Hispanic populations as a result of this. So the census is a big deal. And, and then, of course, congressional districts are drawn based on the census. The census is every year that ends with a zero, every 10 years. And then over the next year or two, the states take that census information and they redraw their congressional boundaries. And this just ain't a good thing. <laughs> I don't know how to say it beyond that. It just, it's just, it just ain't a good thing. Thank you very much, Amy, for the heads up on that. John in Claremore, Oklahoma. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Well, I'm calling Tom. I've been trying to dig up some information about the early Bill Clinton first term. They passed an economic plan, a tax plan, that worked really well for several years, produced a surplus, and raised mm-hmm. possibilities of doing something about the national debt. Yeah, Clinton raised taxes. Any... The Republicans all said it was going to throw us into a depression and instead it goosed the economy. That elected Joe on Morning Joe, didn't it? In his district, wherever he was. You said, oh, they raised taxes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, they raised taxes all over the country. Are you are you aware of anything that's been written about that to kind of summarize it and put it together? Well, back in the day, I remember there was a lot of commentary about you know how the Republicans had made all these threats and warnings, and not only did they not come true, it was the exact opposite. I haven't seen anything recently, John, but I'm guessing that you know, plug it into the search engine of the New York Times or plug it into DuckDuckGo, and you'll probably find it. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. So we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. And it's about how Donald Trump, 16 days after Mr. Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudis in Turkey and his body dismembered and vanished, 16 days after that happened, without notifying Congress and with virtually no mention to anybody, Donald Trump authorized the transfer of top secret nuclear technology to the Saudis. 
This is this should be a serious issue. Uh, Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, is raising hell about it because Khashoggi lived in Virginia. But I think everybody in Congress should be raising hell about this. And I, when you back this up with this new report out from ProPublica that the Saudis were involved in 9-11, it gets real interesting. So you can check that out over at TomHartman.com. You know, look for our video. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Bill Barr, this is just an amazing story. And what really amazes me, the article, I tweeted this article out uh, yesterday or the day before, I think. And so it should be in my Twitter feed if you look at my tweets. A link to it. It was an article on Salon. It was also picked up on Raw Story and Common Dreams and Alternet and whatnot. You know, most of the progressive media out there. And I was pointing out that Bill Barr's history really started in 91-92 when George Herbert Walker Bush, G.H.W. Bush, made him the Attorney General of the United States. And then he covered up Iraq Gate, the weapons of mass destruction scandal, and he covered up the Iran-Contra deal, which officially had to do with hostages being held in Lebanon and the U.S. government, the Reagan administration, sending arms to Iran to get them to influence Hezbollah to let those American hostages in Lebanon go. But the weird thing about that is that we started sending weapons to Israel in 1981. And that hostage seizure happened in like 85, 84, 83, somewhere in there. And uh, so, you know, most of us, you just look at the timeline and it's fairly obvious we were sending weapons to Israel. In fact, we started, uh, it wasn't weapons, it was spare tires for F-15s. We were transshipping them through Israel in the fall of 1980 before the election was even held. So this was the beginning of the payoff to Iran to say thank you very much for holding the hostages so that Jimmy Carter will lose the election and, and Ronnie Reagan can become president. And so that scandal was covered up in 1992 by Bill Barr also. Bill Barr, in a famous interview a few years in 2000, at one of these universities, they're doing these oral histories of presidencies, and they were doing the oral history of the Bush presidency, the first Bush presidency. And, you know, they asked him about it. They said, you know, in 92, George Bush pardoned Casper Weinberger and Ollie North and Elliot Abrams. And, you know, these five guys, three of them had been convicted. Five of them were set to go to prison for the Iran-Contra deal. And Bush pardoned all of them, which blew apart the ongoing prosecution, which could have led to George Bush. This was because at that point in time, they were about to, or they had already, Lawrence Walsh had subpoenaed George Bush's, the elders' diaries, his campaign diaries and his, you know, where he was every day, his official diary of where he was and what he was doing. And it would have shown, particularly if it went back to, to the early 80s, it would have shown his meetings with people that had to do with shipping weapons to, to Iran, his personal involvement with Iran-Contra. You know, not to mention Iraq Gate, you know, to the, the deals. I mean, you've all seen the picture of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. That was during the Reagan administration. It was in the late 80s. And so who rides to the rescue? Well, Bill Barr says, well, George Bush said, what should we do about this? And should we pardon Casper Weinberger? You know, Cap Weinberger, you know, one of the top administration officials in the Reagan and, and Bush administration. In fact, I think he was defense secretary. He was, he was high up there, whatever it was. And Bill Barr said, in for a penny, in for a pound. That's the quote. You can read it in my article. 
you know, the interviewer said, well, what does that mean? He says, pardon all of them. Shut the whole investigation down. Kill the whole thing, which is what they did. And so on Christmas Day uh, in 1992, three weeks before Bill Clinton was about to be installed as president, inaugurated in Washington, D.C., and about, you know, eight weeks, seven weeks after the election, when Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush, Bush pardons all these people. And the screaming headline in the New York Times is, you know, cover up, right? Bill Barr's cover up. It doesn't, Bill Barr's name wasn't in the headline, but it's certainly in the article. Lawrence Walsh decries cover up. Bush pardons five, shuts down Iran-Contra investigation, or words to that effect. You can find it if you're a New York Times subscriber. Just go back and look at the front page of the paper on the 24th and 25th of December of 1992. It will blow your mind. So, you know, that is what's going on. And now you've got people like David Ayer. He was a, a deputy attorney general under bar in the George H.W. Bush administration. So this was, this was Barr's assistant 28 years ago when Barr was covering up the Iran-Contra scandal and the Iraq scandal. And he said, and I quote, Bad as they are, these examples are more symptoms than causes of Barr's unfitness for office. The fundamental problem is that Barr does not believe in the central tenet of our system of government that no person is above the law. In chilling terms, Barr's own words make clear his long-held belief in the need for a virtually autocratic executive who is not constrained by countervailing powers within our government under the constitutional system of checks and balances. Indeed, given our faith and trust in the rule of law no one can subvert, it is not too strong to say, now this is Bill Barr's former assistant, it is not too strong to say that Bill Barr is un-American. And now from his perch as Attorney General, he's in the midst of the root and branch attack on the core principles that have guided our justice system and especially our Department of Justice since the 1970s. To the Tom Hartman program. Barr, of course, doesn't give a rat's ass. He doesn't care what anybody says about him. He's already did an interview where he said, you know, when I'm dead, I'll, I'm dead. I don't care what they say about me. Hey, friends, wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Today on the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. The October Surprise the book is about was the 1980 Reagan campaign led by Bill Casey, who Reagan later made the head of the CIA, but he was Reagan's campaign director in 1980, about their actions with the Iranian government 
cutting a deal where if the Iranians would hold the hostages throughout the election of 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad and weak, then if they won the election, they would sell weapons to Iran, which, of course, is a deal that they kept. We know of this as the Iran-Contra scandal. So I'm reading from the very last chapter. It's the epilogue, and it's titled A Kinder, Gentler Nation. President Reagan signed intelligence authorizations in 1984 and 1985, which were considered licenses to kill, according to top government officials. As we have seen, Oliver North and Amiram Nears' U.S.-Israeli covert operations were authorized by a still-secret accord, never revealed to congressional intelligence committees as required by law, which may have also authorized political assassinations in the name of counterterrorism. We have seen that Vice President George Bush, this is the elder, met with Amiram Nir in Israel in late 1986, when he could have signed the accord with Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, for whom Nir worked. Author Seymour Hirsch has charged Oliver North with being President Reagan's assassination planner. We've reviewed reports that North boasted that anyone who leaked or threatened to reveal the administration's secret Iran initiative would be killed, and that some of the North Secord Hakim team were reportedly involved in political assassinations under the umbrella of counterterrorism. Given this context, it's instructive to note what has happened to many of the individuals who were reportedly involved in or knew about the secret negotiations between Iran and the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign and or about secret U.S. arms deliveries to the Khomeini regime in the early 1980s. So then she goes through the list of people. Dead. William Casey, CIA director, who reportedly attended meetings in Paris, France on October 19 and 20, 1980 with Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to arrange an arms for hostages delay deal with Iran. The morning of Casey's first scheduled under oath testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee on the secret Iran initiative, he was struck by seizures in his CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and underwent speech incapacitating left brain surgery shortly thereafter. Had he lived to testify, according to a lifelong friend and counsel, Milton Gould, Casey would have told, quote, the entire truth, end quote. He died on May 6, 1987. Dead. Imiram Nir died November 30th, 1988, in a plane crash in Mexico. Nir, who resigned in March of 1988, had been chief counterterrorism advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. He was Oliver North's Israeli counterpart in the Near North Covert Operations covered by a still-secret accord reportedly signed by Perez and President Reagan, or according to some U.S. government sources, by someone at a lower level. Easily, Vice President George Bush, during his late 1986 meeting with Nir in Jerusalem, when Nir briefed Bush on the Iran arms initiative. Informed sources suspect sabotage of Nir's plane when Oliver North sought to introduce the secret U.S.-Israel accord as part of the defense in his trial and conspiracy charges, the Reagan-Bush administration refused to produce the document, and the conspiracy charge was dropped. Near died two months before the start of Oliver North's trial. The truth of the final entry in Michael Ledeen's book, Perilous Statecraft, may have something to do with his timely death. Quote, insofar as anyone may have had something dramatically new to add to our knowledge of Iran-Contra, it is likely to be Amaram Near. Dead. Cyrus Hashemi. Died in London on July 21st, 1986, two days after being diagnosed as having a rare, virulent form of fast-acting cancer. Died two days after his diagnosis. According to Iranian-American arms dealer Hoshaglavi, with whom he worked on a major Iran arms-related sting operation in the 1985 and early 86, 
Hashemi was assassinated by U.S. government agents. According to self-proclaimed CIA pilot Richard Brennecke, Hashemi had been a participant in the October 20, 1980 Paris meeting with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, Iran arms dealer Haushang Lavi, Iranian officials, and agents of French intelligence to work out the original arms for hostage delay deal with Iran. Before his death, Hashemi was reported to have said that his 1981-82 U.S. arms sales to Iran had been necessary to obtain the release of the 52 U.S. hostages, released moments after Reagan's inauguration in 1981, and had been approved by the CIA, which Casey headed. Hashemi was also the instigator of the Arms for Hostages proposal, which resulted in the August 1985 tow missile shipment to Iran. Dead, the Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, who reportedly sent a personal representative, according to one source, Jalal al-Din Farsi, to the pre-election Paris meeting of October 19, 1980, with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, and according to some reports, also with George Herbert Walker Bush. Shetty died in a bomb explosion at Islamic Republican Party headquarters in Iran on June 28, 1981. Dead William Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut, and it continues. October Surprise by Barbara Hunter. There's a few other uh, stories that are in the news that are worthy of comment, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. Donald Trump has been taking money that Congress did not appropriate for the wall. They refused to do that, but he's taking it out of the federal budget, uh, out of the military budget, the Pentagon budget, by declaring a state of emergency. Now, there is no emergency. Immigration of the United States is lower than it has been in decades. We do have a refugee problem, but even that has not, you know, surged uh, recently. There is no emergency, but he, by declaring a state of emergency, he can do all kind. He gains all kinds of powers that he doesn't have otherwise, and so he declared this kind of limited state of emergency, limited to the Southwest, so that he could militarize the border, he could send troops down there, and also now he has used that state of emergency to suspend the environmental protection laws. So they're going through Native American burial grounds. They're going through sacred sites. The tribes are not consulted on this. The tribes are ignored on this. They're taking land away from farmers along the Texas border. A whole lot of good Republican Texas ranchers are seriously upset. And they're building this wall, you know, as aggressively as they can so that he can claim victory when he runs for re-election in 2016. I kept you safe from the brown people, all you white people in the Midwest. And that's going to be his sales pitch. But not only has he blown up the environmental protection laws, now we discover he's, he's blown up the federal law that requires that when the federal government buys something, it get competitive bids from two or more companies so that it pays the lowest price. And he's saying, screw that. Find some Republican donating, donating contractor and just give them the bid. These are no bid contracts. This is, this is, by the way, what Bush and Cheney did with the Iraq war is they said, you know, competition, we don't need no stinking competition. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Oh, nothing, Professor. Little, just want to share this with you. Bernie Sanders is the first ballot nominee for the Democratic Party. Okay, straight up. MSNBC, CNN, they're coming around now. Now, Fox News, what they do, they just avoid everything. Uh, Bernie Sanders is going to get the nomination because his issue, his issue of health care, is a $1.5 trillion transfer of wealth. It's the number one issue that everybody is concerned with. And also, 
Bernie Sanders is the only candidate that can approach a homeless person and can motivate that homeless person to go register and vote for him. None of the other candidates are speaking to the homeless people. And that's a very serious issue. Okay? I just want to make that announcement. And people, the next time somebody asks you how you're going to pay for something, you tell them the same way we pay for bombs, the same way we pay for going to Mars, the same way we pay salaries. What's up with that? How are we going to pay for it? The same way we pay for everything else. All right. Thank yeah. you, sir. Yeah, thank you, Morris. Well said. Yeah, you want to have a war in Afghanistan? How are you going to pay for that? Oh, oh yeah. How are we going to pay for a war in Iraq? Oh, yeah. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's up? What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. How you doing, man? Because they don't want Good. sick people. That's classic. Um, yeah. Mike Bloomberg is down here in Alabama buying votes. And the way he's doing that is with the caucuses. So he's going to all the black caucuses, asking them if they need money for their businesses. And then they leave and go down and do a pitch before his people because he's got like $2 million for black businesses, 2 or $3 million. And yeah, no, Mike Bloomberg has been up. aggressively supporting black businesses for a number of years, actually. I mean, this is and I don't think he was doing it because he was planning on running for president. He's there are some very progressive parts to Bloomberg's policies, although I'm just horribly offended by the idea of a billionaire buying his way into our our party and our campaign. But back to you, Tony. I'm sorry. Right. Well, the difference with this is <clears throat> this is attached to them making the commitment to go out and caucus for him, to campaign for him to get his numbers up. Well, so if you can document that, that there's actually a quid pro quo there, uh, Tony, that's that's against the law. You can file a complaint with both your state AG's office and also the Federal Election Commission. I sat and listened to these pitches and I was getting sick hmm. to my stomach. We're coming to this man the way he did black people with the stop and frisk and saying the redlining was good. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to give this man money and he's really a Republican. I was really sick with that. But he is down here seriously talking to all the delegates, giving everybody money. And so hmm. this is just not about their business. This is about him getting his percentages up. So when people say Bloomberg is rising in the polls, that's how he's doing it. He's actually buying his ability to rise in the polls. And I was totally offended. I got kicked out of my best friend's house because I, I told him that, you know, he's going against his own people. Anytime a black woman would vote for a man that would kick around her husband, brothers and cousins and husbands, it's terrible, Tom. Yeah, I get it. It's, I get it's it, Tony. It's, it's, uh, it has the potential to tear the party apart. And we'll see how this shakes out. Tony, thank you for the call and for the heads up on that. It's not surprising, frankly. It's, uh, this is what the Supreme Court gave us in the Buckley decision. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. So when you look in the mirror, do you see wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, a large under-eye bags? Would you rather not see them? Imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. 
Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will even know you're using it. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.